feels like it's been a while since I've been here. It's just like three weeks. So it's good to be back. And <laughs> we are continuing our study through the book of Isaiah. And it's a really great text. I hope I do it justice talking about, obviously, our Lord, but how holy God is and how unholy we are when we stand before him. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time together by speaking to us. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word and Lord, for the worship time that I pray that as we worship, we would really focus on the words that we sing and declaring how holy you are and how good you are. Even in the midst of great tragedies that continue to plague this world, and even in our own lives, I pray that we could stand up and say how holy you are and how good you are and how merciful you are. And I pray, Lord God, that your word would show us that this morning. That I pray that you would reveal to each person in here who you are and who we are because of you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Isaiah chapter 6, we are going to look at the first seven verses. And just to give you an idea... A little background of what's going on in Isaiah. Well, actually, we'll get to that in a minute. Let me start with this. Have you ever, as I mentioned in my prayer, have you ever lost sight of the reality of God? Like that God is there with you. You know, we sing about God being with us all the time. But sometimes we tend to forget, don't we, that God is there. And how does that happen to us? I think... There are a few different ways that that can happen to us. One of them is just situations and circumstances arise that seem to overshadow or cloud our view of God, right? We're so involved in a situation that is going on in our lives, and we don't see how God, as I said in my prayer, is good at this moment, or how this fits into God's plans. You don't have to raise your hands. But I'm, how many of you have been in that point of your life is like, where is God in this process? And you begin to lose sight of who he is. I think one way that we do this, and I'm not advocating for this, you know, over the past a couple of weeks ago, me and my wife celebrated our 20th anniversary. And we were blessed to be in Europe and standing in the midst of some really huge cathedrals. You know, like Notre Dame in Paris and Westminster Abbey in London. And as you're standing in a big cathedral, you kind of get a sense of how big God is. And I think that is why they constructed those cathedrals so big, is so that the parishioner would just be overwhelmed by the magnitude and the majesty of the structure that God is, you know, quote unquote, quote unquote in. And in our society, and and this is why I'm not advocating this, we tend to maybe informalize worship a little bit. You know, we we dress down, right? We're all, nobody's here in a suit or tie. I'm not advocating that. Although one of my friends gives me a tie and says, you need to preach with the tie on because that's the right way to do it. But it's really a matter of the heart, right? It doesn't really matter what you wear. It doesn't really matter where you worship. But when you're in When you're dressed more formally and you're in a formal setting, you tend to be a little more maybe reverent. I know as even as we were walking through there and they had, I don't know, you know, they had like tombstones, but they're not tombstones, they're all flat on the ground of people that are buried in those cathedrals. You know, you're you're kind of like tippy-toe, like you're stepping on them. You're a little more reverent, like, 
I don't want to step on, you know, so-and-so that died in 1345. But you just get a sense of awe when you're in there. And again, you know, in our society, we've scaled that back a little. I mean, we, we again, dress down. We're a little more casual. And sometimes I think that's a detriment to understanding of how awesome God is. And again, it doesn't really matter what we wear or where we worship, right? Because those people, even in those big cathedrals and dressed up, could still have the wrong heart. So I'm not advocating that. But I just think sometimes the informality of dress and worship or even carrying our Bibles. You know, some of you, no, not saying you have to. I would advocate that you do. Carry a Bible into church. We look at our phones or our iPads. Even our language, right? We get away and the language that we talk about God might be a little different. And cause us again to just lose sight of how awesome and great our God is. So situations may arise, informality. And then also, even when things are going good in our lives, we tend to forget about God, don't we? When there's nothing to pray about, there's no big, you know, big chaotic thing going on in our life. You know, there's food in the refrigerator. There's money in the bank account. Sometimes we tend to forget about God. And in the text before us that we're going to look at in a moment, that's exactly what has happened to the nation of Israel They've come to a time in their history where they're prospering and things are going well and they have forgotten about God. And so let's look at that now because there's going to come a situation and we'll talk about this in the history of Israel that God intervenes because now something bad has happened. And Israel, in a sense, is like, well, what do we do now? Everything might go south on us. So let's read that. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 7 and then come back and talk about this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, so as you can see right away, there's something negative going on. I saw, so in the year of King Uzziah's death, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." So we're going to stop there. We'll look at the rest of Isaiah's vision next week. But just in this first part, Isaiah has a great vision of the throne room of God. And again, how many of you, including myself, would just wish once in a while God would show himself physically so that you know you know he's there? Well, I would suggest that we probably really don't want to see that because we would say what Isaiah said. And let's, so let's talk about that. So again, 
very, on the very outset of verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death. So what is going on that there's a vision from, of God during the reign of King Uzziah? So just a little background. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years. And for the most part, he was a good king. He followed the ways of the Lord. And it says whatever he did, as long as he followed the Lord, he prospered. So he was doing good. God was with him. Now, he didn't clean out everything that was evil in the land, as a lot of the kings, that was their downfall. But what happened with King Uzziah is that he was having so much success in his life as a king and the nation that he began to become a little proud in his heart. And in the process, he went into the temple of God, and he wasn't a priest, so this was wrong. He went in the temple of God himself and presented an offering to God and burned incense. And the priest said, Uzziah, you are not supposed to do that. That is not your calling. You are not a Levite. You're not a child of Aaron. But he refused to listen. And God struck him with leprosy because of the proudness of his heart. And he lived the final days of his life separated from his, the house of the Lord and from the house of his family because of his leprosy. And so it was at this time, it seems like in this says in the year of King Uzziah's death, that Isaiah sees this vision. So here's the nation of Israel. Everything's going great. All things are prospering. All the, you know, there's nobody invading us. Everything's going good. And now our king is dying. He's struck with leprosy. He's been cursed by God. And so maybe there's a little bit of worry, a little bit of panic of what's going to happen now. Is God going to judge the nation because of what our king has done? And a lot of times in Scripture, God intervenes to comfort his people, to bring good news and to encourage them. And this is exactly what happens with Isaiah. So with that background, let's see what Isaiah saw. Let's look at his vision and examine that a little bit. So again, in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So what did Isaiah see? So he sees the Lord sitting on a throne. What does that mean to Isaiah and to the people? If the Lord is sitting on the throne, that comfort to Isaiah is saying, you know what? I'm still in charge. I am ruling and reigning. No matter what is going on in the, in the life of Judah and Israel, God's vision to Isaiah, God's encouragement to Isaiah is that I'm still in charge. I'm still in charge. He's the sovereign king. He's seated in a seat of power. He's in control and he has authority. What else does he see? He says, again, the Lord is sitting on a throne lofty and exalted. And this is reference to the Lord is lofty and exalted. Well, what does that mean? Well, God is above all things in rank, in position, in his being. Again, it's a reminder to Isaiah that the Lord is in control and he's highly exalted above anything, even above King Uzziah. Israel was, and Judah was trusting King Uzziah to bring about, you know, comfort and peace and prosperity. And God is saying, I'm higher than King Uzziah. You can trust me. Again, this is the vision he's given to Isaiah because as we'll see next week, he's going to give Isaiah a ministry to go out and do the same thing for his people to comfort them and to speak to them on God's behalf. 
So again, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. And the next vision that he sees as he's described to us is the train of his robe is filling the temple. This is describing God's presence. You notice that although Isaiah says he sees the Lord, he never describes them to us. Like, hey, what did he look like, Isaiah? You think Isaiah would have told us. You know, how tall was he? What did he weigh? Did he have long hair, short hair, spiky hair? We're not told. And it's really because what the Lord looked like didn't matter. It's who he is. It's who the Lord is. And this description of him is that his train is filling the temple really speaks of how big God is. Could you imagine being in a temple? Let's just say the temple was this big. And all that you could see was the robe of the Lord. It just, again, it's a, it's a symbolic way of saying God is so big, it is so magnanimous that you cannot comprehend him. And maybe that was part of it. That even if Isaiah saw the Lord physically and the Lord had an appearance, he could not even describe him to us. You know, it would be, it would be like me trying to describe what we saw in England to maybe a young little child that wouldn't even understand. In a big cathedral, we saw these mosaics and we saw these altars and these crowns that belonged to King so-and-so from the 1600s. To them, they wouldn't even get it. It wouldn't mean much. It probably in some ways, as we, as Isaiah would try to describe the Lord and how awesome he is to somebody that has not yet seen it, it wouldn't make sense. That's why in your bulletins, there's a quote from Job. I really like that quote, and I think this pertains, and it's really true in each and every one of you. So if you can, grab your bulletin and look at that quote, because this is important. Job says this, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Do you understand what he's saying? He's like, I, I had this notion of who you were, God, because I heard about you. But now I've had this physical interaction with you, this experience with you, and now I see you. And I I would bet this morning that there's some of us in here that could identify with this, identify with this saying is, I've heard of God. My parents talk about him. I read about him. I even worship him, but I haven't really, quote unquote, seen him. And I pray this morning that each and every one of us would see God in a new way. I really like that quote from Job because it wasn't until he had his interaction. And unfortunately, if you know the story of Job, he went through some hard times where he truly saw God. And you know what? If that's what it takes for God to get a hold of us, I pray that that would happen to some of you this morning. That you would go through something hard so that you can truly see God. So let's continue on with Isaiah's vision. So Isaiah, seeing the Lord on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The next thing that he sees are these mysterious creatures. Look at, look at this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. And by the way, this is the only part of Scripture that the seraphim, are even mentioned anywhere. So look at what he says in verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. This is the seraphim. So the seraphim have six wings. Two of them cover their face. 
Two of them cover their feet, and with the other two, they fly. So what does all this mean? Why would the seraphim cover their face? Well, let me say this. Where are they standing? They're standing in front of God. And I think because God is so awesome and so, again, just so hard, you know, it would be like trying to stare at the sun. that you, you have to turn your face. So I think part of this is God's message to Isaiah that, this, that God is so holy that those who stand before him have to cover their face continually because they cannot behold how awesome God is. That may be it. What about the other, two, what about the other part of their wings? They have two wings covering their feet. And many commentators, you know, talk about, well, what does this mean? Because we're not told in Scripture. One of the things that I've liked that I've found is that maybe they are covering their imperfections from the perfect being. Like God cannot behold imperfection. And so they're covering the rest of their body and their feet being the example here. Again, that's doesn't say that there. It could be totally speculation. But it's interesting to think about. Here's this holy God. And here's something unholy standing before him. It has to cover itself. And with the other two, obviously, he tells us that they fly. They, like all creatures of God, they are to be ministers for God. And in the next verse, we are told what these seraphim do. Verse 3. It says, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the, fer- the seraphims that are standing before God, we are told that they are praising God. That's what they do. They praise God in this vision. And I think if we were to stand, truly stand before God, we would probably be praising him too because we would get a sense of how awesome he is. I hope you get that sense when, we're, when you're worshiping God that you are worshiping God. That you are worshiping. So you're not just singing for the worship team or singing for the, for the rest of the group. But you should be singing to your God. And all those words that you say, I hope you really mean. Because God is awesome and he's worthy to be praised, isn't he? So here are the seraphim who stand before God all the time. And all they do is worship God. Because God is worthy to be worshipped. And they worship God because he is so holy. They say, holy Holy, holy. And they say it three times. Why? Because three is a number of perfection. Those of you that went through the Rev study, you probably talked about that. And even the book of Revelation, which we'll mention in a few minutes, they say, holy, holy, holy. Three times stressing the importance of what is being said. God is perfect. God is perfect. He is totally distinct from every other being, first of all, in his perfection. And part of his perfection stems from his righteousness and his justice. God is ethically and morally perfect. That means everything God does is right. That means what? If God doesn't give you something or answer a prayer, then that is what you need. Have you thought about that? Doesn't God give us what we need? So if he doesn't give us something, that's probably because you don't need it. However that may be, however wrong that might seem to you in the sense of, hey, well, I'm praying, for example, I'm praying that my dad will 
survive when he was dying? God didn't answer that prayer. Why not? I don't know. But whatever it was, that was the right thing. God is right. God is just. And even though you don't understand it, is God perfect? Do you believe that God is perfect? Do you believe that all good things come from God? Then even in death and sickness and tragedy, God is morally, ethically pure and righteous. That's something that we need to think about, church, who our God is. So if you don't have something that you're praying for, you probably don't need it. Or maybe God is just saying, wait for a minute, I'll give it to you later. Because God is perfect and holy, and I hope you see this in the context this morning. So that's why the angels, as they stand before God, they can say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, or the Lord of hosts. You remember, before we started the book of Isaiah, we started in, we went through the law, the Ten Commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments were God's moral and ethical law and religious law to the nation of Israel on how they were to relate to him. Because God is holy, he demands a certain way that you respond to him. And here, now we are in Isaiah, you know, hundreds of years later, Israel has broke that covenant with God. God is to be approached in a certain way, and they have stopped doing that. So God's holiness is not only based on who he is, but based on his law as well. God demands perfect holiness. right? The scripture tells us to be holy because why? God himself is holy. And when you break that covenant with God, then there are consequences to pay. And so again, as the angels or the seraphim stand before God, they fly around singing out to one another, praising the Lord God. And in verse 4, Isaiah tells us what he feels. So here, think of this, and I hope you can kind of put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. You're going to get a sense of what Isaiah sees, what Isaiah hears, what he smells, and what he feels. It's just overwhelming. If, you're, if you just take the time to understand what's going on. So again, so Isaiah sees God highly exalted. The train of his robe is filling the temple. Then he sees the seraphim flying around, singing praises to God. And then he feels the foundations of the temple shake. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold tremble at the voice of him who called out. Then here's his senses of smell. Well, the temple was filling with smoke, and this was probably incense from the altar. So this, all your senses are, all of Isaiah's senses are being, you know, used in this vision that he is having. And after he sees this, he hears this, he feels this, he smells this, what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. He's not saying like, wow, this is so awesome. This is so cool, which it would be as we're as we're, you know, reading about it. But here he is standing before holy God, the creator of all things. And look at what he says. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why would he say that? Why would he say isn't it supposed to be a blessing to be in the presence of God? Why would he say woe is me? Well, The very next sentence, he tells us, because I am a man 
of unclean lips. What does that mean? He realizes that standing next to God, who is holy and perfect, Isaiah gets a sense, you know what, I'm not that great of a person that I should be standing before him. I was trying to think of a comparison, and this might be bad, but if, you know, if you like to work out, you know, and you like build muscle, you know, if you've seen this before, maybe you've done this, you start working out for a few days, you're like, you know, I think I could see some muscle. I'm looking pretty good. And then if you go stand next to a bodybuilder, you're not thinking, you're probably rolling your sleeve down a little bit, you know, covering up because you realize, you know, I'm not that, I'm not that muscular. In a small sense, that would be us standing before God. You know, hey, you know, I went to church today. I didn't fight with my spouse. I was nice to my kids. I put a little extra money in the offering. I'm pretty good. And then you stand before holy God, and you're like, oh, I'm really not. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really nothing standing before absolute perfection. And the great thing is we'll see is that God, God doesn't leave us there. So Isaiah goes on, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among an unclean, a people of unclean lips. Isaiah realizes that he's not that great, even though he's a prophet of God in comparison to God. And his people, he knows the nation of Judah is not that great as well. And he realizes this again because he's seen the king, the Lord of hosts, it says at the end of verse 5. He again has seen absolute perfection, holiness. And compared to that, he realizes that he is unholy. And all, no matter what he's done, in comparison to perfection, he's not perfect. And the great thing about God is when you come to realize that, that is when God moves in. And so a lot of people can't even get to that point, right? And maybe there's some of you this morning in this room that don't really see yourself as that bad compared to God. Like, well... I'm not that bad. You know, I don't do A, B, or C, so I'm probably pretty good. But when you, we don't compare ourselves to one another. We compare ourselves to the holy God. And again, in light of holy God, we are imperfect people. We are of unclean lips, and we live amongst people of unclean lips. And again, as I started off saying, God doesn't leave you there. Once you realize that, This is what's going to happen because this is what happened to Isaiah. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. So the seraphim fly probably to the altar of incense to get a hot burning coal. And look at what verse 6 says. Excuse me, verse 7. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You see, when Isaiah realized that he was not good, not holy before God, that's when God took away his iniquity and forgave him. Isn't that true of salvation? When you realize that, you know what, there's nothing that I can do to earn my salvation. There's nothing, you know, I've broken God's law, I'm sinful, That is when you cry out to God and God forgives you of your sin. That's the picture Isaiah gives us here. And as we'll see as we continue on in Isaiah over the next few weeks, this is the solution for Judah as well. Judah needs to come to a realization that they need God. 
that we're not that great. No matter how great our king is or how bad our king is, individually we need God. And I pray that each and every one of you this morning would see that no matter how good you think you are, no matter what family you've been brought up in, no matter how long you've been going to church, no matter if you carry a Bible or carry your phone and read the Bible, no matter if you worship in this building or an ancient cathedral that's the greatest looking cathedral in the world, each and every one of us needs to come to a realization individually that I am unclean and I need God. And it is then and only then will God will extend his forgiveness to each and every one of us. So, let's conclude with this. What, what can we learn of, about God from Isaiah's vision? I'm sure you've learned something already just going through God's word without me having to point things out. But, you know, a good sermon has a conclusion and some application. So, what do we learn about God from Isaiah's vision? Number one, we learn that God is the sovereign Lord of the world. God reigns over all things. And even though you can't see him, even though your life is going good or when your life is going bad, guess what? If you were to see a vision of God, you would see God on the throne. No matter what happens, God is on the throne. And he's sitting. He's sitting, meaning the work is done. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is the only priest that we need, and his work is finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done. And so God is the sovereign Lord of all the world. Secondly, God is exalted above all mankind. And I think that's something that we need to realize. You know, all of us might have people that we look up to, people that we may even put on pedestals. But you know what? God must be the most exalted person in our life that we look at. I pray again that each and every one of you this morning would see God as the most lofty and exalted person in your life, that he is far above any person that we can put our trust in. Thirdly, what I want you to learn from Isaiah's vision is that God is ethically and morally pure. And I kind of already pointed this out earlier, that God is perfect and he is good. And again, all that he does is good whether you understand it or not, that doesn't change the fact that God is good. And we just sung a great song about, if you sung it, did you really mean it? You are good. You are good. Oh, you are good. You are good. That's why I'm not on the worship team. But you get the point, right? How many of you, you don't have to, if you sung that, did you really mean it? And can you sing it when tragedy strikes? When tragedy strikes, does that mean God's not good anymore? Did he all of a sudden get pushed off the throne? Did he all of a sudden become lowly and not exalted? Here again, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, the vision that Isaiah saw was God in the throne, lofty and exalted. In a tragic time. I pray that each and every one of us remember that when we are going through hard times. And we also remember that when we're going through good times. That God is still on the throne, highly and exalted. Fourthly, what I want you to learn this morning from Isaiah's vision is that God alone can remove our sins. Right? It wasn't Isaiah being so great and so awesome 
that his sin was removed. It wasn't that Isaiah, being the great prophet that he is, went up and got the coal himself and put it on his lips. No, what happened? God sent the seraphim to Isaiah to get the coal and to remove the iniquity from his lips. It was God moving towards Isaiah once Isaiah realized who he was. It was God alone who can remove our sins. And fifthly and lastly, what I want you to learn this morning is that God alone is the one who offers forgiveness to each and every person in this room. It is God alone who does that. No man can do that. I can't do that for you. You, each and every one of us, must go to God ourselves. But again, we will only go to God when we realize that we need him. Like Isaiah said, woe to me, for I am ruined. There's nothing he could do standing before a perfect God. So how should we, or how should these truths affect us? And I pray that you will find at least one way this could affect you. Number one, and we'll close with these last four. We can find comfort that God is in control of all things. I hope that brings you comfort, that God's on the throne. Again, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering and persecution, God is still on the throne. I I don't like to talk about it because I always start crying, but when my dad died, God was on the throne. He was in control of it. He took my dad home, and my dad's no longer suffering. And God was in control of it. Now I suffer, obviously, and you suffer by watching me suffer. (laughs) But God's in control of all things. You know, my dad was going to be going through chemo, and and Mindy mentioned, you know, maybe that's why God took him. So he wouldn't have to suffer. If if you've seen somebody go through chemotherapy, it's not the prettiest thing. And maybe my dad's body couldn't have taken it. I don't know. But God was in control. Secondly, how should this affect us? We should approach God with complete reverence. If God is so holy and so perfect and so big in control of all things, we should be a little more reverent in our approach towards him. Again, the angels covered themselves. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm undone. And this kind of goes to what I started out at the beginning is sometimes we maybe uh, in one sense the informality of our worship services and stuff. And I'm not going to say we're going to have high formal worship because I like our worship. But sometimes in our hearts, they can, it can cultivate an informality. And we might not be as reverent with our Lord. So I pray that you would think about that in your worship time, in your prayer time, and just your alone time with God. Are you reverent? Do you realize how big God is and how small you are? And don't be so prideful and puffed up in who you are and what God has made you. That you would approach him with complete reverence. Thirdly, how should this affect you? I think this should cause us to worship him more. Again, the seraphim who stand before God every day, what do they do? They worship him. As a matter of fact, I want to give you, uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. This is a perfect example of what people do who stand before God every day. Yeah, we have time. 
Revelation chapter 4. I think this is a good, this is a similar scene to Isaiah's. So John uh, says this, after these things I've looked and behold standing at the door open in heaven and the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here and I will show you what must, what must take place after these things. So immediately I was in the spirit and And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. So here he sees the throne as well. And he gives a little description of who was sitting there. He says, he who was sitting there was like a jasper stone and sardis in appearance. And uh, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald, like emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments, and gold crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion. These aren't seraphim. These are other creatures, by the way. Um, the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf, and the third creature was like, or had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So here's this scene that John is giving us that he sees in heaven. In verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say. And this is a point I wanted to get to. When you stand before God constantly, this is what you do. Day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So when you stand before God, and this is my application point, you worship Him. Why? Because of how awesome He is. We should always be in a state of worship because of who God is. And again, I know this doesn't happen because, right, life happens. And God gets clouded out of our lives. And what I'm telling you is to, to, to make an effort to constantly think about God. Because He's always with us. We should always be in a state of worship. And it's not easy, I know that, right? Because tomorrow morning at work, we're all going to go through hard times. And we're not going to feel like worshiping God. But God is still on the throne. God is still highly exalted and lifted up. And he is still holy, holy, holy. And we are still his children and we stand before him every day. And I I pray that you could do that, that that will help you remember to worship God because of how awesome he is. No matter what's going on in your life, he's still on the throne. Let's continue on in verse 9 of Revelation 4. Just close out this chapter. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you create all things, and because because of your will they exist and they were created. They worship God because who he is and what he has done. 
And I pray that you can worship God because of who he is and what he has done for you. And for those of you that might struggle worshiping God, ask yourself, why can't I worship God? Is it a pride thing? Is it like you're so awesome and so great that you can't open your mouth and worship the Lord? If you were to stand before God, what would you do? Would you worship him? That's what everybody does when they stand before him. One, they recognize, well, I'm not that great. And then they worship the Lord. And lastly, how should these truths affect us? We should come to him for forgiveness. Just like Isaiah, Isaiah recognizing how unworthy and unholy he was. Now, God initiated it for him. But, on, but now we can see that it is only God who offers forgiveness. There is nothing else in this world that can save you from your sins. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good works in this world to earn salvation. It only comes from God. And each and every one of us at one point in life will need to stand before God and say, Woe is me, I'm ruined. You will either do it now or you will do it after you die. But after you die... If when you stand before God and say, I'm ruined, you will be ruined because salvation will no longer be offered to you. So I pray that today you will realize that the holy, exalted, lifted up God offers salvation to you right now. And I pray that you would receive it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the vision that you gave the prophet Isaiah as he gave us a glimpse into the holiness of, of yourself. And I pray, Lord God, this morning that each and every person would take a moment to think about themselves in comparison to you, the holy God, the one who is lofty and exalted, the one whose glory not only fills the temple, but the whole earth. And I pray, Father God, that you would help them to realize that they need you, and that in this moment they would cry out to you and say, Whoa, I am ruined without you, Lord. And you would touch them. That you would remove their iniquity and forgive them of their sins. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us who are your children. Who've already acknowledged that without you we are ruined. That you would help us to always have in our mind how awesome and how big you are that we would not let the worries of this world and the trials of this life crowd you out, and that we would fight against it, Lord God, in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls, with our entire being, Lord God, we would realize how awesome you are and how worthy of prayer and praise you are. So I pray that you would help us to see you, Lord God, in a different light, in the light that you've shown us this morning. Help us to stand before you in all your glory and worship you, Lord God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.